Have you tried changing your health year on year, resolving that this year things are going to be different, but nothing seems to change? Oftentimes, when things are not changing, we are following many wellness myths and not looking at the full picture, including our nutrition, recovery, stress management, leaving out mind-body connection. I want to introduce you to Wellness Redefined, a new podcast from Refillion Media that's here to dispel all your myths about wellness and fitness while sharing stories of how we redefine what it means to be healthy. On each episode, we'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who will share their own unique wellness journey and offer their perspective. I am your host, Tamika Rochester, founder and CEO of Harlem Cycle, a premier wellness space in New York City with a focus on indoor cycling. I've been an advocate for wellness since as early as I can remember. So if this sounds like something that could help change your life, go ahead and pause the show you're listening to and subscribe to Wellness Redefined on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, and welcome to Invisible Hate. I'm Asad Bhatt. And I'm Sadia Khan. Sadia, how was your week? My week was good, Asad. Before I hopped on this call, I finished eating this delicious, delicious bagel egg sandwich from our local bagel place in my town. Wow, you're so American now. Yeah, it's so American, right? <laughs> was it a was it a place called Dunkin' Donuts? Because that's no. where I get my, I used to get my egg and cheeses. It's called the Bagel Emporium. And they are in a lot of towns in Westchester County. So you'll find one that's in Chappaqua, Porchester, Rye, I believe. So they're everywhere. And the sandwich was so good. I kid you not. It had egg, avocado, bell peppers, hash browns. And I just devoured it, I said. And I was like, oh, my gosh, oh my I can go to sleep after this. I don't have to record this. Was it $25 or something like that? I don't know how much it cost. <laughs> That's so sad. Oh, I didn't check how much it cost, but I'm sure it was an expensive sandwich. You officially become a millennial American who loves their avocado egg and cheese sandwich on a bagel. What kind of bagel? Multigrain? No, it wasn't multigrain. It was sesame seed, I guess. No, that's not bad. It's not bad, right? And you're right. So I've always liked avocado in all different shapes and forms. So I consider myself an honorary millennial if anybody wants to give me that title. Because there are a lot of <laughs> things that I like doing that millennials like doing. But unfortunately, I'm stuck in Gen X. Are you a foodie, Salia? I don't know, Asad. Did you take a picture of the sandwich? I didn't take a picture, but I normally do. Okay. Especially when I'm at a restaurant. Is that sad? Is it sad? Like, I hope my kids are not listening to this. <laughs> are they embarrassed by they you? Are. But then they are embarrassed by everything that I do. Yeah. How about your husband? Uh, I mean, he will say things like, you don't have to take every single picture, right? Eat it. Don't take pictures. But then I've seen lately he started taking pictures. Oh, wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Something's that was changing. A... I wonder what. Amazing. Your influence on him. Yeah. So how was your <laughs> week? Yeah, my week is uh, is going well so far. I, uh, like you, was a guest on the Daily Zeitgeist oh um, my gosh. last week. How and was so that? That was exciting. I mean, it's great. You know, uh, 
uh, Miles and Jack are are fun hosts, and we talked about a bunch of different things. And um, yeah, if if you haven't checked it out, definitely recommend checking out that podcast. Yeah, so that was a lot of fun. And then yeah, I'm looking forward to my sister is coming to visit this weekend, and we'll get to meet her niece for the first time. Oh, so nice. that'll be exciting as well. By the way, I yeah. haven't listened to your episode, but I follow you on Twitter, so I saw you retweet about it and even tweet about it. And you mentioned something about candy. Yeah, I'm curious. Can you share what did you guys talk about? So the story was that AMC, you know, the, the movie theater, um, is so fed up with the price of candy that they get from whatever, you know, the big companies that they're going to start creating their own AMC branded candies to sell in the movie theater. Huh. And so the, the conversation was just about like when you're going to the theater, are you going to get the – are you going to get M&Ms and Twizzlers or are you going to get the AMC branded version that might be a dollar cheaper? That's interesting. <laughs> and so that was the conversation. Oh, yeah. wow. Can't wait to listen to it. I said – yeah, it was fun. It was it was a good good conversation for sure. Those guys are really funny, and I hope I kept up. I'm sure you did. Should we get to today's story? Yes. So, Sadio, it's just before midnight on August 10, 2016, in a suburb of Portland, Oregon, and 38-year-old Russell Courtier and his girlfriend pull into a 7-Eleven in her red Jeep Wrangler. 19-year-old Larnell Bruce and his friend are already there. They're just standing outside. Both Courtier and Bruce are large and intimidating men. Both have had convictions for violent crimes in the past. Courtier is white. Bruce is black. And then for unknown reasons, an altercation begins. It becomes physical, with Bruce at one point pushing Courtier into the store's window with enough force to crack it. And then, the fight appears to end. But shortly afterwards, cameras capture Bruce sprinting down a nearby street, weaving from the sidewalk to the road as Courtier chases him in the Jeep, swerving across lanes and accelerating. Courtier's girlfriend is said to be yelling, Get him, baby! Run him over! And then the car hits Bruce off-camera, Bruce is declared brain dead and dies three days later. I said, this is so sad. And I'm still stuck at the altercation part and wondering what led to that altercation, because that would explain a lot of things that happened later, right? I think this goes back to, you know, there's some of these things, they just escalate so quickly, Sadia, right? And um, we'll get into what is known and not known uh, about the altercation that night. But yeah, agreed. And so back to the story, Courtier and his girlfriend, whose name is Colleen Hunt, were pulled over in the Jeep shortly after the incident and admitted to intentionally hitting Bruce. Neither witnesses nor cameras could reveal what or who started the altercation, Sadia. Hmm. Uh, Courtier claimed that Bruce approached and called him white trash and then instigated the fight. He said Bruce threw him into the 7-Eleven window and then brandished a machete. Bruce was actually, yeah, really carrying a machete. 
um, that was concealed in a cloth, but it was not clear if he used it during the fight. The friend who was with Bruce says he was trying to sell the machete that night and not fight with it. The friend also said that Bruce was charging his phone at an outlet along the 7-Eleven wall when Courtier pulled up. Now, Sadia, have you ever heard of this group, the European Kindred? I said I haven't. Is it part of the British monarchy? <laughs> you know, what I originally, when I was researching this, also thought that it had some sort of, you know, it was a European kind of group. But no, it's actually uh, an American group. It is a large white supremacist prison gang based primarily here in Oregon. Oh, wow. Um, I guess Courtier has been a member since like 2003 or 2004. And he actually was wearing a European kindred hat and had a European kindred tattoo on his calf. And, you know, just a little bit more about the EK, um, European kindred. It was started in prison, and membership in the EK is basically all male, and membership is restricted to those with no more than 1 16th Native American ancestry. And the group, like, has this formal structure and rules and rituals. It's really secretive. And according to Wikipedia, the gang has a reputation for extortion, assaults, moving contraband goods through, um, you know, Oregon prisons and dogfighting. And then new members are encouraged to, quote, earn their bones. That basically means that they have to kind of earn their membership through hostile action consistent with the group's cause. We'll get a little bit deeper into the EK later on. All of this sounds so crazy, I said. Like, this group is not only racist, but they're also misogynists. It's like, this is the first time I've heard of a group that's basically all male white supremacist group. It's just so scary that it's almost funny. And, you know, uh, Colleen Hunt, the girlfriend, actually denied knowing what EK was when this came up. And just to note that after the incident, the CCT footage from the crime went viral across the country. And as you can imagine, protests broke out. EK members showed support for Courtier on Facebook. And Bruce's mom's house, where he'd been living, was actually graffitied with racist messages about freeing Courtier and that Bruce deserved death. And it was believed that members of the EK actually were the ones that did that graffiti. And so, you know, Courtier was indicted with murder and failure to perform duties of a driver to uh, injured persons and eventually a hate crime. And then Hunt, the girlfriend, was charged with murder and eventually a hate crime as well. Well, this is interesting. So both of them were charged with hate crime. Yeah, under the Oregon statute, for sure. So I said I want to go back to what you mentioned in the beginning about Bruce having a machete and I wonder why he was carrying it. Do you have any more information on that? No, I mean, really just what was said um, by his friend that he was carrying it to sell it and not using it as a weapon and or for intimidation. But, you know, I, I don't know what to believe in that, in that sense. Who carries around a machete, right? That, that would scare me if I saw a machete in real life. Yeah, that's such an interesting point, I said, because I was thinking about this and you know how there are certain open carry states in the U.S. where people are yeah. allowed to openly carry firearms, right? And nobody really is scared or it's something that's so normalized in American society that nobody really thinks of it too much. But as soon as we change 
the weapon, people are more scared. And I wonder if there is a particular connotation of who carries a machete and what it means. And maybe that in itself is racist. What do you think? That's a really interesting point, Sadia. And uh, honestly, like this morning, I was out for uh, a dog walk and I was carrying uh, my daughter on, you know, in, in one of those baby carriers with the dog. And I actually walked by an individual who is carrying a baseball bat. Hmm. And I think similar to your what you just described with the machete, it really took took me back. And I, I kind of like moved to a different side of the street because, it, you know, it is a weapon. You don't you don't see it outside of the normal context of a baseball field, you know, very often. And so interesting. Maybe it's more rooted in racism and how we connect or associate certain weapons with certain communities. And that's why we mm. tend to be more scared because that's part of American psyche to be scared of mm. people who don't look like us, you know? I don't disagree with that, Sadia, for sure. And I said, we are back in Portland, Oregon. What's happening there? I am really scared for you, I said. I really am. <laughs> My hometown, yeah. Yeah, we're back. You know, the story has a couple of tie-ins to other stories that we've covered, Sadia, even though, I, you know, I live here. I first learned about this incident after researching the story about the throat slashing murders on the Max that we did, you know, maybe like a month and a half ago, two months ago. This hit and run actually occurred nine months prior to that and is cited as the beginning of a period of heightened racial tensions in the city. And so, you know, of course, as we've mentioned before, Portland does have a sordid history when it comes to racism. The city is about three quarters non-Latino white, which is much higher than other large cities. And, you know, the far right Patriot Prayer Group has evidently been holding rallies here every single Sunday for years, spreading the message that it's okay to be white. You know, and I think, you know, as I always note, you know, as a caveat, you know, I, I don't see this kind of overt racism on a daily basis out here. And I find the people that I interact with are uh, pretty remarkable and open and accepting. But of course, there are pockets of these racist, fascists, you know, groups uh, here in, in Portland and Oregon, um, unfortunately. Yeah, we keep going back to Portland, Oregon. And as I said, I'm really scared for you. But at the same time, I think it is emblematic of what's happening in America, broadly speaking, right? Yeah. And so, you know, Sadia, Oregon as a whole is conservative. It was once a white-only ethno state, banning black people from becoming residents and had actually more KKK members than any other state in the 20s and is said to have at least... Uh, 21 white supremacist groups, oh, wow. which is just crazy to me. But something we haven't talked about before is how a lot of these kind of racist groups start as prison gangs, um, and evidently those prison gangs are growing. There tend to be, uh, you know, segregated groups that form in prisons, which do not get along with other groups. And so a lot of first-time offenders get recruited in exchange for protection in prison. The Aryan Brotherhood is one major group like that, which started in the 1960s and is big in California. But in Oregon, it's this European kindred or the EK as we've been referring to it. 
I said this takes us back to what you and I have been discussing on this podcast and we've discussed it a number of times. What does rehabilitation look like and should people be sent to jail for minor offenses, right? Because a lot of times people who go to jail for minor offenses become hardened criminals and we don't see as many conversations happening around this. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And certainly, you know, I don't know what it's like to be in prison or jail. And, you know, I feel like uh, I'm learning a lot through doing research for this podcast as to what it's like for people who are going into prison or jail for the first time. And it's got to be scary, right? And yeah, one of the reasons that you join a gang is for this protection. And I can understand because it's probably really scary to go in there for the first time, right? Yeah. So anyway, Sadia, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, EK was formed in 1998 at the Snake River Correctional Institution in Eastern Oregon by David Kennedy to, quote, protect our own people in this joint. EK members are supposed to pledge their lifelong loyalty, whether they're in prison or not. They have a, quote, blood in, blood out policy, meaning that they have to draw blood from someone to join as well as to leave. This is such BS, Asa. This is just such BS. Courtier admitted to joining EK after his first conviction for assault. And according to his family, he only joined for safety against minority gangs in prison and didn't need or want that association on the outside. He's never been racist. We have, like I said, I have a friend that I've known for like 35 years. Her family is black and white mixed. And uh, they call her Aunt Betty, she's black. You know, both my sons call her Aunt Betty. Um, we had a black guy across from us, Rusty, immediately. But let's remember that Courtier was actually wearing an EK hat when he was at the 7-Eleven that night. Courtier had an extensive juvenile record, plus seven felony and four misdemeanor convictions, as well as substance abuse issues. And he had spent half of his adult life in prison and, in fact, was on supervised release slash parole from prison for attacking a random woman with a knife when he killed Bruce that night. He'd evidently violated parole repeatedly with very minor consequences. He also pleaded guilty in 2018 to an attempted assault during a bar fight in 2015, the year before the incident with Bruce happened, and he'd repeatedly struck a veteran who was white with a billiard ball after the man called him out for lying about being in the Marines. In the interest of full disclosure, Bruce had also apparently been involved with gangs and drugs and faced his first conviction for a violent crime at age 14. Of course, Bruce was much more than that and died in the prime of his life. He actually grew up in neighboring Vancouver, Washington, and was known for having an unmistakable passion and energy for life. Uh, he had a wide smile and was a talented football player and part of a large, loving family. And he actually was also a donor, Sadia, and his organs went to five different people um, upon his death. Asad, as you're reading this, I keep thinking about all the cases that we have covered so far, and I can see a true line of white supremacy. And it really saddens me to see that a lot of people in America are unable to see the harmful impact of white supremacy on our society. 
broadly speaking, right? This is the same playbook. We've seen it. We've read it. We've researched it. It happens again and again. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Sadia. And, you know, that's why we're doing these cases to showcase how often it happens and how quickly these things can escalate. Right. Absolutely. So what happened in the courts and at trial, Asad? Oregon law dictated that Courtier, if convicted, would get a minimum of life in prison with possible parole after 25 years. But prosecutor David Hannon moved for a, quote, dangerous offender status and thus a longer prison term given Courtier's long and violent record, his status as an EK member, and the unlikelihood of rehabilitation. And so the trial was eight days and was very tense with two sets of parents often just a row apart. At one point in the hallway, Bruce's dad actually lunged at Courtier after he supposedly smirked and then was banned from the courtroom for six months. Courtier did not take the stand at any point per his lawyer's suggestion. But, you know, there was no dispute that Courtier actually hit Bruce with the vehicle. But the defense kind of made this argument that he wasn't, you know, at fault for the following reasons. They said that Bruce initiated the fight, that he beat Courtier unprovoked, and that he threatened his and his girlfriend's lives with a machete. They said that Courtier suffered a concussion from the beating and wasn't thinking rationally. They said that Courtier's long-term ADHD led to his rage and then his inability to reason. They said that Courtier's EK membership was irrelevant because there's no such thing as a, quote, inactive member. And then they said that the jury shouldn't let Courtier's opinions an ugly past cloud adjust ruling. And so on the prosecution side, you know, they said that it wasn't clear who initiated the fight and that Courtier was clearly a racist and that he may have, you know, antisocial personality disorder given his general lack of remorse. But, you know, they still said that he was at fault. And so the jury deliberated actually for three days. In the end, he was found guilty of all three counts, murder, hit and run driving, and second degree intimidation, which was the hate crime law under Oregon law. And then just a note, Sadia, the jury was unanimous on the murder and the hit and run charge, but they voted 10 to two on intimidation enough to secure a conviction. This is an interesting outcome, Asad. And I'm also thinking, how would I vote on intimidation charge, right? Because there's a lot of information to process and think through. Now, what I'm seeing is that Cotier had a history of violence and rage, right? And we've seen that consistently throughout this story. And I wonder if he killed Bruce in an outburst of rage rather than because Bruce was black. And I hate saying this. I really, really do. But this one is this one is difficult to process for me. I feel the exact same way. And I think it's it's really hard to judge based on what we know of what happened that night, which obviously we're getting most of it from Courtier and his girlfriend and the friend of Bruce and obviously Bruce himself can't share the story because he passed away. And so, yeah, I'm with you, Sadi. It's really tough for me as well to determine whether this should have been charged or convicted as a hate crime. I said I also want to go back to how the jury voted. So it's 10 to not 12 out of 12. And my understanding is 
the jury has to unanimously vote for somebody to be convicted. Yeah, that's not the case here in Oregon. It's one of two states that doesn't require unanimous verdicts for criminal felony charges other than first-degree murder. And so, yeah, this change was initially passed by ballot in 1934 after a notorious murder trial and was meant in part to decrease the influence of corrupt jurors or, quote, untrained immigrants on jury. So, Sadia, this is made for you. Oh, my gosh. I said, this is so sad. Why are we dragging immigrants into this? Yeah, immigrants are the cause of all problems. That is just a joke, obviously. It's yeah. us, Asad. It's always us. Yeah, it's always you. Um, <laughs> and, so you just, <laughs> and this was the first actually hate crime murder conviction since our story a few months ago back, you know, that we did on Mulgata Surah. Uh, and that was in 1989. Wow, Asad, that's bizarre. So what we are saying is that nobody since 1989 was convicted of hate crime. Yeah, exactly. In in the state of Oregon. Yep. Wow. That's just so crazy and shocking to me. So what was the general reaction to all that happened? You know, in the end, Courtier was sentenced to life in prison and with no chance of parole before 32 years. And again, you know, his lawyers had advised him not to speak at sentencing, but he was emotional and later said that his intention was to scare and not kill Bruce and that he wished he had taken the stand and apologized to the family. Bruce's father said at sentencing that he hoped Courtier would spend his time in prison thinking about whether he wanted his own son to grow up in a world with white supremacy. Um, my son will go without a father and we will go without a son, but in return, to he he, uh, he sacrificed his, his family as well. He's, he's going to have to to live without his family and he's his son will now have to live without a father and his everything that happened today and then you know a national hate group watchdog and chairman of the Oregon coalition against hate crime Randy Blazek who testified for the prosecution said that these hate crime murder convictions are so rare in part because the crimes are mostly vandalism or non-fatal assaults Plus, it's difficult to prove someone's mindset during a crime. And then he also pointed out, quote, the irony is this guy's going back to prison as a ranking EK soldier. He's going to spend his time recruiting other people in prison. After the sentencing, Bruce's family and friends released green balloons across the courthouse to symbolize the organs that Bruce had donated. And for her part, you know, the girlfriend Hunt eventually pleaded guilty to first-degree manslaughter and aiding and abetting Courtier for letting him use her Jeep to chase Bruce down. She wrote a letter of apology, and she was ultimately sentenced to 10 years in prison, which prosecutors found fair because there was no evidence that she shared Courtier's racist beliefs. Asad, there's so much to deconstruct here. First, I don't buy this narrative that his girlfriend didn't share his racist beliefs because she was encouraging him to basically run Bruce over. So I don't really buy that. And in terms of Bruce going back to prison as an EK soldier, 
and spending time to recruit people. And it goes back to the same question that you and I have been asking. What should punishment look like? What should rehabilitation look like in cases like these where people are targeting innocent people, other folks, based on their perceived racial, ethnic, religious identity, sexual orientation? Do they need to go back to prison and become hardened criminals? Or do they need to be put through some other community rehabilitation program where they can really understand somebody else's perspective, see others' humanity fully and wholly, and then integrate back into the society, right? It's such a difficult question because lives are lost. Precious, precious lives are lost. But at the same time, what does prison achieve in all of this, right? No, I, I completely agree with you, Sadly. You know, he will be, I don't know, 70-ish when he is eligible for parole. And so, you know, three decades in prison, you know, there's two paths that he can go down. One is, you know, really feel sorry for what he did and go down the path of rehabilitation like you described, or he can double down on his, you know, racism and white supremacy and um, his his gang life. And, you know, I, I, one would hope that we would build a system in which the right option is the one in which he is choosing to be rehabilitated and, and he can get the services that he needs. But the reality is, is that that's probably not the case here in the States, right? Yeah, you're right. So Asad, what is the latest and how can all of us help? Yeah, so Bruce's family started a nonprofit organization to expand hate crime awareness and give basic benefits and assistance to hate crime victims and to advocate for better hate crime legislation. It's called the Larnell Bruce Jr. Foundation, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And the family also helped pass Senate Bill 577 here in Oregon, and that was basically, you know, before hate crimes were previously called intimidation and were misdemeanors unless two or more perpetrators were responsible, meaning that a sentence of 18 months rather than up to 20 years. And so now they're called bias crimes and they are felonies in the first degree, regardless of the number of people committing them. And they are also all documented and shared. And now gender identity is included as a protected trait. And then they also set up a call line uh, for reporting, which is really great. And then just to note that the BBC actually covered the murder and trial and ended up making a documentary about the murder and its aftermath and the state of race relations in the U.S. It's called A Black and White Killing, The Case That Shook America. It was hosted by journalist Mabin Azhar and aired in 2019. We couldn't find a link to it online, but there are a good clip or two on YouTube, and so we'll have a link to those in the show notes as well. So, Sadia, any final thoughts or takeaways on this case? Asad, I want to address our listeners. So if there are any listeners out there who are part of a minority group and who've been hate crimed or who faced any sort of microaggression, and if you're okay and willing to share your story, do write to us. We want people to understand how hate, hate crimes can impact individuals and communities and what better way than our listeners to talk about their experiences so write to us you can also dm us on our socials and we would love to read your story on this podcast 
thanks, Sadia, for that. And, and thank you for joining and listening to Invisible Hate. As always, if you want to learn more, you can check out the links in the show notes uh, about this case. And you can also, as Sadia mentioned, email us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com with your thoughts on this case or any other case for that matter. You can also find us on Instagram or Twitter. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share it with a friend and give us a rating and review. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Rafaelion Media and Immigrantly. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Isabel Havens, Lizzie Gamble, and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We'll be back next week with another hate crime for us to look at. Until next time, I'm Asad Butt. And I'm Sadia Khan. 